Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Theresa May is quitting as prime minister. She is out on June 7th, although she will be staying uh, for a bit longer to manage the transition. Right now, this is being treated as a positive in markets, at least for the time being with the pound gaining. Joining us now, Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics at Dartmouth. He is also a former Bank of America, Bank of England uh, policymaker. Excuse me. Uh, professor Blanchflower, we love having you on. Why are uh, British assets rallying today? Well, I think in some sense there's uh, at least a relief that the, that, the, that some of the uncertainty is over, but it's really unclear kind of where we're going. So the movement isn't that great. I mean, I've been thinking today, I think perhaps for the markets, the most interesting thing is in all probability we're going to see a new Chancellor of the Exchequer who will be the person appointing the new Governor of the Bank of England. And I think that's obviously a, an issue we need to kind of care about who knows where that's going to go. But the, but the uncertainty going forward is basically not just who the leader will be. The reality is that this is a, a leader of a party that's a minority government. So the question really we should ask ourselves is, could this person actually govern? Could they negotiate anything through the parliament? Is the Halloween deadline going to be pushed back, which I suspect it is? And I think the markets have to deal with the prospect that perhaps like Christmas, there will be a Labour government headed by Corbyn. All those things are on the table. So in the short-term market, say, okay, this thing at last has happened, but down the road, who the heck knows? So, Professor, it, it appears that Boris Johnson uh, is the favorite to replace May. Right. What would a Boris Johnson leadership look like? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, he was a singularly unsuccessful as um, the foreign secretary and, and ended up resigning. Um, he, but the reality, just we should say, is that he was the, the top candidate to get the job the last time round and didn't get it. I mean, the, re the reality is he's not going to be able to pull together any cross-party kind of consensus. So he's a populist. Um, he basically has said, I want to go back and negotiate some deal or other, but, and if not, then we'll use the threat of having... Um, no, having no deal at, at Halloween. So I think it's not going to be a government of consensus. And my suspicion is if and when he gets to be prime minister, my bet would be he won't last a year. Okay, so that's perhaps why people aren't counting in the idea of a hard Brexit as much as you would think based on Boris Johnson's right. rhetoric this morning. Is that how we can interpret that? I, I think so. I mean, uh, the, he's talked about we can go back to the European Union and renegotiate. Um, well, that's, you know, that's cloud cuckoo land because the European Union said, well, the deal is the deal. And a no deal would have to so resolve the Irish question. And Boris Johnson is, is, is very good at um, headlines, but not very good at the nitty gritty of actually negotiating and trying to work out what you would do. So there's a lot of other people who are in there, but the who are in this competition. The reality of many of them are Brexiteers, but um, we we will see whether that actually will generate any kind of majority in the House of Commons. And what we've seen is that it has not been able to do that. So being prime minister is one thing; being able to govern is another. And I think that's the problem. 
um, and, and we'll see. But I don't think much of anything's resolved. Uh, it was absolutely clear the three times that Th- Theresa May lost that she had no consensus across the parliament. And the fourth time was not a charm. And so we've really not resolved very much. Um, we will see. So, Professor, what is the status of a second referendum? Is that still on the table in any way? Uh, I absolutely think it is It, it is on the table, um, a possibility. Many of the people in the Tory party who um, t- don't like it, um, it's still on the table. But I think the reason why it's getting kind of complicated is unclear what, what the question would be in that referendum. So would it be, here's Theresa May's deal um, against um, remaining. So, no, so even though we, people talk about the second referendum, you have to resolve what's the question. You can't just come and say, do you want Brexit or not Brexit? Because that's, that's the, the devil now, as we know, is in the detail. So I think the answer is yes, probably. But we have to resolve <laughs> what's it a referendum <laughs> about? Oh, um, 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 so, so, that, so that obviously is a, is a big problem, but I yeah. think all options are on the table, um, and a general election might well end up being where, where we'll end up, and that won't resolve anything either. So just a real quick here, Danny, I'm wondering, looking back at Theresa May's tenure, are we going to say that she utterly failed and she could have done something different, or that she just was dealt a terrible hand of cards? I, I, I disagree on the dealt a terrible hand of cards. I mean, she was dealt a hand, perhaps it was unexpected, but she made us two fundamental errors. The first error she made was she did not reach across the, the aisle to anybody outside the right, essentially the right wing of the Tory party. And that, and that um, group has brought down governments in the past. John Major was brought down by, by that group. So that, so that was the first thing. Uh, and the second thing she did was she triggered Article 50 in March 2017 with right. absolutely no plan whatsoever. So you trigger this thing, give yourself a two-year deadline with absolutely yep. no clue what the plan was going to be and no possibility of generating consensus. She so didn't still, have to do that. She could have triggered this Article 50 later. Right. So, so I still, think she just dealt herself a terrible hand. Dealt herself a terrible hand and uh, unfortunately did not make it any better. Danny Branchflower, Professor of Economics for Dartmouth College. Thank you so much for joining us. What has been a very difficult environment for bricks and mortar retail, one area that has seen growth is music. And our next guest has been on the forefront of this growth, Ron Jappinga, CEO of Guitar Center based in Los Angeles, California. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Just first, I wonder if you could just tell us about Guitar Center, how big are you guys, what's the growth been looking like? Yeah, sure. Um, well, we're about $2.2 billion in revenue, and we go into the market with uh, four different segments. We have our omni-channel segment, which is Guitar Center. So those are our brick-and-mortar namesake stores that we also have the ability to buy online, ship to store, buy online, ship to customer. We then have a pure play um, brand, which we call Musician's Friend, which is just online. 
And then we have a music and arts segment, which is the beginning stages of the musical journeys for children. So think of band and orchestra and schools. And then our fourth segment is our business solutions, which is our business where we're going into uh, other businesses being helped them do conference centers, uh, studios, bars and restaurants and businesses like that. So we talk a lot here on the show about brick and mortar versus online. How have you seen sort of your two businesses uh, when it comes to just how you're how you're selling the goods uh, evolve? Yeah, well, we've um, we have a pretty unique uh, situation is that our products are lend themselves to a environment where it can really be a lot of fun. So when you go to our guitar center store, it's really a experience. So what we do is we make sure that when you walk into the store, you're greeted by great salespeople, and you have the opportunity to actually play the instruments. So it's a unique experience to be able to walk in to one of our stores, take a guitar, $1,000 guitar, $10,000 guitar off the wall, be able to sit down and play it without anybody um, uh, bothering you. And we see that as a very unique uh, experience because when you go to a mom and pop or other stores, they actually have signs on the wall that say, please do not touch, ask for salespeople. We actually have an amp plugged in with a pick ready to go, and you can sit down and, and play the guitar. So, Ron, you know, one of the things that Lisa and I, we hear from a lot of retail executives when they come here talking about their business, it's about shrinking the footprint of their stores to try to match kind of, you know, the the demand out there, given that more and more sales are going online. You guys are actually adding stores. Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, so again, it's in this omni-channel environment for our guitar, uh, guitar Center brand. So what you see is we're adding about six to ten stores a year for Guitar Center. And we just opened up uh, Hawaii recently, and we're going to open up Alaska a little bit later on in the year. So this year we pulled back to six just because they're a little bit more complicated. But again, we see this omni-channel experience. Because of the environment that we have, customers come into our stores, and it's kind of like the candy land for our customer. They get to see spectacular guitars. It's not unusual to have somebody come sit down, play a guitar, start playing a song, have a drummer start um, playing the same song, and all of a sudden uh, you got a song being played in the store by just customers. So that environment just keeps adding on. We're also adding services into our business. So we have lessons, repairs, and rentals. So we're now being able to sell you the instrument. We're being able to teach you how to use the instrument. We're able to support your gig at the bar if you need to rent some additional products that go along with it, and then repair the actual item when it needs repair or just to even be restrung. So I'm just wondering, going forward, especially as you open all of these new stores, how are you financing that? Uh, We're doing it all on our own. Um, We're financially sound, and we have the ability to open our stores. We've also acquired two companies recently in our B2B segment, and with music and arts, We've actually gone from 150 stores and we're at 215 stores currently, and we look to open between 20 and 30 stores a year in that business segment. But right now I'm looking, uh, I know that the company has a a triple C rating, and I'm just wondering, I mean, that's typically closer to default. How do you make sure that you generate enough revenue to offset the costs of some of these uh, expenditures? Yeah, we're positive cash flow, so um, we manage our debt very carefully, and we have our ABL, which we use as our checkbook to be able to finance our operations, and we're well within all the limits that we have within that, and we just are very prudent about all of our expenditures. 
So, Ron, I know uh, Bain Capital acquired you guys, I guess it was 10 or 12 years ago. What's their thinking about the investment? That's a long time to own a portfolio company. Actually, Bain doesn't own us anymore. Um, oh, okay. Bain uh, did take us um, private, and Ares is now the owner. And Ares has owned us since 2014. And they're extremely supportive of the direction that we're going in right now. And as we continue to improve the business and the profitability of the business, then um, I think you know we'll have some kind of a transaction in the future. But we've just finished six uh, positive quarters in a row, and uh, the business and all of our strategies continue to do well. And so we expect to just continue to move forward in the way that we're doing right now for the foreseeable future. Ron Japinga, thank you so much for joining us. Ron Japinga is Chief Executive Officer of Guitar Center based in Los Angeles. Well, one thing that rising trade tensions between the U.S. and China have engendered in financial markets is volatility. To get a better idea how to best navigate this, we turn to our next guest, Doug Siaka, uh, Chief Executive Officer and Partner for Kavar Capital Partners. They're based in Leewood, Kansas. They have approximately $700 million under management. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. How are you guys kind of managing the day-to-day -day swings in the marketplace that can be, you know, in, you know, just create a buy a tweet here or there. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's good actually to have volatility back. We, we feel like it's presenting some opportunities for putting capital to work that had not been present in the first three or four months of the year. And, you know, I, I undeniably do not feel like the market has been blown off course, but the winds have shifted, right? I mean, it, things that were headwinds coming into the year and now tailwinds and vice versa. And, you know, the trade war going into even the month of May felt like there was going to be a quick and, and very prosperous resolution, and that's been completely overturned. Yet at the same time, we didn't feel like earnings were going to be very strong, and they were considerably stronger than we had anticipated. And, you know, the Fed was going to be neutral, and that was going to be a headwind, but now it looks like the Fed – and even despite some of the comments that were pretty benign that came out on Wednesday, I mean, the Fed is dovish. And I think when capital, which is plentiful, starts to be mobilized in the absence of a lot of fear that dictated the trade this, this last couple of weeks, I think it's a good opportunity for the market to actually have kind of a pretty constructive summer, even if it only runs in place. So, Doug, where are you finding opportunities? Where are you buying right now? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. I, we, like, if you look at the sector performance this year, it's pretty amazing, right, as it relates to a contrarian buying opportunity in a, in a sector like healthcare, right? The S&Ps of, what, 12% or almost 13% year-to-date, and healthcare is up just a little bit better than 3 right? And there's certainly, there's regulatory noise that's attendant to this sector. There always is, particularly when uh, aspirations and, and different campaign promises get to be slung around, and we're, we're just beginning to see that, and we're going to see that intensify over the course of the next year. Earnings were solid in Q1. Revenue was solid in Q1. Biotech specifically, we think in terms maybe of immune, immunotherapy, genomics, these are like revolutionary therapies and technologies that we think are underappreciated. And this is a market, particularly given the pronounced level of volatility we're, we're undergoing right now, that is valuing substantive and substantial organic growth and high margin businesses, and those are plentiful in the healthcare sector right now. Well, Doug, how about in the, uh, you know, one of the things we've seen in these uh, rising uh, trade tensions between the U.S. and China and with, and with the Huawei news is the tech sector's kind of gotten whipped around here, the semiconductor stocks uh, taking yeah. a beating. Are you taking this as an opportunity to maybe take another look at tech, or is this just too big of a risk to kind of bite off? 
No, we don't think it's too big a risk at all, Paul. You know what's amazing? I don't know if you guys have followed Bespoke on Twitter. They put a, a phenomenal valuation comparison chart out last night that the valuation, the PE on tech and utilities are almost paired off, right? The, you, the PE on utilities right now are 20, is 20.1 and tech 20.5. We think there's some very interesting opportunities, particularly if you consider where we are in the economic cycle, which is undeniably late, We've seen an enhancement of productivity, and the aforementioned plentiful capital that's sitting on company balance sheets gets deployed in a fashion that's going to elevate that productivity to take the profitability into the future. We think tech has some very interesting opportunities right now. And I, I think the Huawei thing, as it gets thrown around, is going to be a catalyst to really offer some of those interesting and attractive entry points. Interesting. I'm looking right now, of course, though, at yields, and, and I do have to wonder whether they're sending a more bearish signal uh, than equities, especially with 10-year yields hovering around the lowest since 2017. Yeah. Are, do you think that, that, that we can sort of take some kind of bearish signal here, or do you think that there's just a different story priced in having to do with central bank uh, dovish policies? Yeah, I mean, there's always a message in, in the bond market, right, Lisa? We always say the bond market is more cold, hard, and calculating, and the stock market's more that of the kind of the, the realm of the temperamental child. And it certainly is telling us that inflation is not an issue. It's likely telling us that growth rates may moderate. It is certainly embedding some sort of an elongation of the trade tariffs and foreign and domestic politics. If you think about like the two axes upon which markets pivot, you have access to capital and you have confidence. And the bond market is a proxy for both, and it's kind of splitting its time right now. Capital is plentiful, but confidence is absolutely waning. So people are kind of look for a signal, and likely that would be embedded in a backup in yields. Because even though yields have come down, over the course of the last three months, the curve has steepened. So you've had this bull steepening trade that's been in place that does give us an indication that if things do tend to normalize, that can make a very productive contribution to the markets continuing forward. But the message of the bond market should never be ignored. So, Doug, are you part of what I guess I would call the consensus uh, that it looks like the Fed will cut rates uh, at least once before the end of the year? I, I don't know, Paul. That is such a tough prediction to make. I mean, certainly, like the Bloomberg, the WIRP screen is giving what a uh, my favorite. Thanks for pulling that out. Yeah, I love it as well. In, in the market is in the market, and WIRP has always been a little bit ta- detached from the Fed. I, I really don't know that the Fed needs to cut rates. I, I, clearly, if they don't feel like the economy is running, you know, so it, it weaker, and whether you want to look at the GDP now from the Atlanta Fed or other. Um, underlying uh, sort of data points, I don't feel like they need the stimulus. Now, if you could get something that kind of runs and buttresses the monetary policy, like something productive out of fiscal policy, and who knows, maybe we get some kind of a breakthrough announcement with capital spending and infrastructure and that kind of thing. I don't think the Fed wants to cut. I hope the Fed does not cut. It is interesting to me that the market is obviously far more pessimistic than the Fed is communicating or the economic data is demonstrating. No, I am not in the camp that they will. Doug, I, I'm struck by sort of this dissonance here. There are some people who say that the trade concerns are really what's weighing on equities and what's certainly uh, creating a bid for bonds. Other people saying that that's actually the peripheral story and it really has to do with slowing growth globally. Where do you come in on this? I think it, the, 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 the former. I, I, I've not seen any slowing growth globally. I think we have a fear of slowing growth globally that goes back to the message of the bond market. I've not seen the data that would support that other than in some anticipatory impact of the trade tariffs 
and its it, its contractionary capacity, or it's played itself out. I, I've just not seen it yet. At least I think it's more just consternation and fear, and that's being pulled forward. Not unlike the optimism and the greed had been pulled forward in the first three or four months of this year. Just real quickly, ten seconds. Is there anything you're just staying away from any equity sector? There really is not. I mean, I, I think when you look at some of the valuations in the most defensive sectors like utilities and real estate, and to think that they're up 20% and growing at 2 or 3% with a PE at 20 to 25%, I think you have to be really cautious there and selective. But as kind of wholesale basis, no, we're kind of consider everything on, on kind of an individual fundamental assessment basis. Doug Sioka, thank you so much for being with us. Doug Sioka, Chief Executive Officer and Partner at uh, Covar Capital Partners from Leewood, uh, Kansas. Interesting to see that he's seeing opportunities and he does think that this is more a story about trade concerns than it is slowing global growth. Talking about municipal bonds, we have to talk about the tremendous rally that we've seen in the debt, where we've seen uh, prices on the debt uh, rising to record highs relative to treasuries. We're very lucky to have with us here uh, Amanda Albright, municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg News in our interactive broker studios in New York. So, Amanda, there are a number of analysts coming out from big banks saying, okay, this has gotten a little ahead of itself. There is going to be a pullback. What's their argument? Right. So I talked to some portfolio managers this week that kind of made the case that with munis, um, whenever you see a sustained period of you know really big inflows like what we're seeing now, um, you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, I think what's really interesting about this moment is that investors don't really know what that will be. So some people have even talked about the 2020 election as being something that could trigger that or something even more soon if people start to realize that they're kind of paying a lot to own munis right now and maybe they're not being compensated for the risks or maybe they're you know, better off buying treasuries or corporate bonds instead. So Amanda, we've seen really over the last several months, if not more, just this tremendous inflows into the municipal bond market. Um, are we seeing a kind of commensurate new issuance by uh, municipalities saying, boy, this market's great. I better just go out and raise the money while I can. Um, absolutely not. Um, so the last time I <laughs> We're checked seeing today- fiscal, fiscal prudence? Uh, not so much. So th- when I checked this morning um, on NBM, which shows um, the scheduled bond sales versus the amount of bonds maturing and being called away, I think it outweighs it by over 20 billion right now. And so we're entering this period where bond sales are really, really light. Um, you know, finance officials are on vacation just like everyone else. Um, and But we're having all this money pulled out of the market and it's looking to get reinvested. So investors are looking to that as another kind of um, supporter of performance. Um, but it's also kind of a frustration to them because they have all this money to put to work, but they don't really have a place to put it. They have a place to put it. They're just not doing it, right? I mean, we're talking about infrastructure spending, and we've been talking about the $2 trillion plan that won't, or wasn't, (laughs) or has not been. Um, Why aren't some of these localities just doing it themselves? So I I think this is a really interesting conundrum. Um, Dallas-Fort Worth said this week that they are doing a $3.5 billion expansion. Um, So that's an example of, you know, a place that's going at it alone. Um, But I think that, you know, whether it's smart or not, I think mayors and governors in some ways, they're holding out a little bit of hope for the federal government. We have seen, you know, some gas tax proposals. Some of those have been um, successful and some of those are kind of tied up in political stuff right now. Um, Michigan is still considering theirs. Um, but in terms of like the super local level, I feel like there's still a little bit of reluctance and a little bit of fear about taking on debt still. 
Let's look at the other side of the equation a little bit. Like when I think about chronic fiscal woes at the state level and municipal level, I think Illinois. But the bonds are doing really well. What's going on there? Yeah, so the situation for Illinois, um, investors have gotten more optimistic about it under um, J.B. Pritzker, who's the new Democratic governor. Um, so you have one party rule in Illinois now, um, and the state is getting closer to enacting a progressive in- income tax structure, which will help them you know, raise more revenue from wealthier earners in the state. Um, so that's caused the bonds to rally. And you know, investors are really looking to 2020 as potentially you know, being a, a further boon to the state's bonds. But again, that's kind of making a, a big bet on what residents will do when that's up for a vote. And we've started to see a lot more money move toward Puerto Rico again, right? That's true. We've seen um, you know, high yield funds, they keep attracting cash. We've seen some high yield deals on the calendar this week um, that my colleague Joe Mysack has been writing about. Um, you know, Those are getting um, strong market access still. And again, this is a time when we're seeing you know, even Wall Street analysts saying, hey, like maybe now isn't the best time to be buying these. <laughs> is... I don't know. How does the municipal market look at Puerto Rico now? Has it been, you know, permanently negatively impacted or is it a temporary thing? And once it becomes clear that they've got their ducks in a row, that investors will come back? Um, it's really, this is like the key muni market debate right now. So you can talk to some folks that are really optimistic on Puerto Rico, um, you know, especially after the hurricane and all the federal money um, expected to come in, that's a positive. But if you talk to other folks, um, you know, they've kind of been burned before and they're seeing that the underlying issues in Puerto Rico with its economy, you know, still exist and maybe haven't been fully addressed. So it really depends on who you ask. Is there any sign of any pullback by investors or at least a softening in demand as a growing number of analysts say, you know what, guys, maybe just temper your enthusiasm. Um, it, I haven't seen any signs of that yet, but it wouldn't She's surprise like, no. me. No, um, there, there, there have been none. I think most people are kind of um, they're not hesitating to you know complain to me about how, how high prices are. Um, so it's just a matter of when portfolio managers decide you know to kind of step off completely. That was that was so diplomatic. That, that they're was. not hesitating <laughs> to complain. I, I just picture the phone calls that you get from people saying, "Oh my gosh, these prices are just too darn." I'm not buying them. Amanda Albright, thank you so much. Amanda is a municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here on our interactive broker studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.